0: And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, I wanted to catch up on some news. I've kind of missed out on some news over the last little while, and the news is ever-evolving out of the Disney company. There's so many things happening and so many moving parts because of the size and speed of the company that I thought it was time I catch up on some news. So I wanted to start off with talking about The Magic Kingdom. Uh, there was a plan out there for the Hyperion Theater, and that was going to be a new indoor venue that they were going to put uh, behind Main Street, sort of in the area between, if you look at a map, it's between Main Street and Tomorrowland, sort of in the parking lot area there that's kind of behind it if you're looking at a uh, like the satellite view. It's actually uh, back where if you're there late at night and you're exiting the park and they take you off the pathway between Tomorrowland and Main Street, they take you on the pathway behind the Magic Kingdom, it's going to be sort of back in that area. There was a little theater back in there. It was an open air venue that they had back there for a while uh, that they were using for various shows. And that would be in the same location generally. They would take over part of the parking lot and they would have like a, an exit off of Main Street that would take you back to this Hyperion Theater. Well, interestingly, the theater has sort of disappeared from the discussion and it's no longer being actively discussed as something that Disney's going to be building. Now, whether they go ahead with it or not is sort of anyone's guess at this point, but it looks like perhaps it's not going to go forward. They're spending their time, energy, and money in other places. Now, for example, the, uh, one of the things that they had talked about putting back there was the, uh, the Night of Joy uh, concerts that they have. These are some Christian concerts they do around the holidays, and uh, it was a f- fairly successful thing that they were doing for a long time. They had moved it around. It originally started in the Magic Kingdom, moved to, I believe, over to uh, the wide world of sports for a while, and then they abruptly canceled it. I believe that was one of the things that they wanted to put inside the Hyperion Theater so they had another location for it, another venue they could put it in. But uh, it didn't work out, and they've canceled the, the concert anyway. So interesting how those kind of things uh, come together. So there's, I think there's a high likelihood they will find other venues. And with the addition or expansion to the wide world of sports, I think it's more likely they'll use space over there for some of these activities that they want to do. It's a question of where do you want to put people and have them uh, come to something that's perhaps not in a the theme park, and how would you use your theater in the theme park for something that's meaningful? So that would be my take on it. And speaking of that, it seems like Disney is going to continue to try to do more after-hours events. If you look at some of the things that they've been working on for a little while, you, know, you have the uh, Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party and Mickey's not, and Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party that go on between basically uh, September through December. And that takes up most of the fall season where they have some nights, select nights as they say, during the week where they close the Magic Kingdom and they open it up to uh, other ticketed guests for the one evening performance type thing. Well, during the summer, you don't want to do that necessarily. Right now anyway, that could change. But during the spring, they're talking about having this happen again. So they're, they're planning for more event type things happening in the spring. They don't really have it named per se. It's sort of got a generic name. It's, you know, after hours party or something like that. For, you know, $120 or so, you can come and see some select attractions, get a little um, fruit juice and cookies or something, you know, one of these things where they have some light snacks and they have some attractions open, some character meet and greets, and they keep the crowd size a little bit smaller than they might otherwise. So it looks like they're trying to fill the parks a little bit more, again, on select nights, so nights when they know there's going to be a lot of people in the park. Based on regular traffic, they'll leave the park uh, typically open as usual, but on other nights, they'll close it at 7 o'clock and let other people come in the park, similar to what they do with the Halloween party and the Christmas party. And I get it. Disney is in the business of making money, and they're trying to figure out how to make more money and you know maximize their profits, but it still strikes me as kind of weird that they continue to chip away at the regular guests who come into the park. Yeah, you still get a full day. I mean, 9 to 7 o'clock is still a pretty long day, I mean, if you think about it. You're talking about 10 hours in the park uh, for the price of admission, so it's still a pretty good deal. It's just interesting how they're trying to evolve it to make it almost like there's two days in the park, in a way. So you get the first one, and then you pay for the second one. So interesting how they continue to evolve that. The other thing that I heard about, a new special pass that would get you into any of the parks, with select pre-selected FastPass Plus options already on the ticket. Now the thing I noticed about it was that these FastPass plush options look like mostly like attractions that you're normally typically walk-on type attractions. There's a couple of exceptions in there. But things that, you know, it's not the wait is never that long for anyway, but then now they're adding it in as a fast pass selection included with the ticket. And I'm not quite sure what to make of that. So you would get your three fast pass selections, but they'd be pre-selected for you at pre-selected times. To go on these these very specific things. And you can of course wait in the queues for anything else you want to do. And I suppose after you use the three, you'd be eligible to get more fast passes, um, but you'd have those three already pre-selected. So it's a way to get in certain things if you like those things and you want to be sure you see them. But it does not include the marquee attractions. Now I gotta imagine this is sort of a test case to see how it plays out. Then they'll come back later and see if maybe they want to sell some with the marquee attractions on it for maybe a higher price point or with some additional things associated with it, something to make it a little bit more of a sales pitch. And again, somehow it becomes more about the bottom line and less about the experience. We'll see. You know, They may change their mind on how they market it and what they do with it, but it certainly feels like that right now. Turning over to the Animal Kingdom, uh, I wanted to wish it a tw- happy 20th birthday. Animal Kingdom opened on April 20th, 1998 That would be Earth Day, 1998 Appropriate for the Animal Kingdom First, Disney Magic Kingdom Then Epcot Then
1: Disney MGM Studios And now <laughs> Introducing the most adventurous Walt Disney World theme park ever Disney's animal kingdom the imagination of Disney Go wild
0: And remember <laughs> <laughs> Nagazoo)
1: kingdom it's many many things but remember its not a
0: now on another podcast I'm gonna to have to come back and talk about the animal kingdom in some more detail to tell you more about what was originally planned and some of the things that you see in some of the opening promotional materials that were out there 20 years ago so stay tuned for that I'm gonna give you that little teaser and come back to it another time also in the animal kingdom there They've changed the uh, Flights of Wonder attraction to now be Up a Great Bird Adventure, and uh, it's similar to what it was with the similar types of birds and so forth. But now the Up characters are there, so Russell comes out on stage along with the dog, of course, and they uh, they have part of the they take part in the adventure too. So it's got an Up theming to it. And again, back to why can't it just be the Animal Kingdom? Why does it have to have theming about you know some particular character? But it does make sense in a way, I guess. Yeah, you know, they did go back to South America and they did you know visit. Uh, and see the big bird, so I guess it makes sense. Toy Story Land is nearing its opening on June 30th, and it was kind of funny. They had a turn of phrase that they used uh, when they were installing the Woody statue outside, and it was almost kind of funny. I don't think it was intentional, but Disney said they were erecting a giant Woody, which (laughs) just sounds pretty funny on the surface of it. But uh, as they installed the, uh, the Woody uh, character there outside the uh, Toy Story land, they uh, put that marketing material out there. Uh, something else in the, uh, in the uh, Hollywood studios. I was noticing, I had pointed out before, that one of the interesting things was they had put together all this planning for the Star Wars land, but it was kind of weird the way it was oriented because you had the, uh, the Muppet Vision 3D kind of in the way, and you have some other things where there's an odd orientation, and you can see into other lands, and it looked kind of odd. Well, Disney did what Disney does best. They fixed the aesthetics to a large degree. They started planting a bunch of trees to line out the area so that you can't see other areas from one area. And it looks like they're fixing the entryway so you have to kind of go up and around to go to the Muppet Vision where you go straight through to go to uh, Star Wars land. So I think they're fixing it in that sense. And it just, like I said, it looked really weird, but trees make a big difference. And that's been the hallmark of Disney for a long time to put trees out there. When they don't have any other way to fix some of the aesthetics, they, uh, they just line the, line the area with trees and it kind of changes the sight lines so that you're looking at what, you, what they want you to look at. So kudos to them for fixing the uh, small problem that was there. I think I mentioned before that the Agent P game, they no longer have the kiosks out for uh, the game. And uh, now you can actually access the game through the My Disney Experience app. Though you can actually just go directly to the website because that's what it does too. It directs you to the website. And the website is agentpwsa.com. And if you go there, you can play the Agent P game. So if you're not in the parks, you obviously can't interact with it, but you can watch some of the Phineas and Ferb videos that come along with it as you're standing around and uh, just playing with your phone. So you can still do the Agent P World Showcase Adventure and enjoy it and take it in. And uh, it didn't go away. It's just that now they don't have the same kiosks anymore. You don't use the phone. You use your own mobile device to be able to walk around. They will loan you one. You have to ask around where to get it. There's only like one kiosk now where you can get it. And they're only manned certain hours of the day. But the rest of the time, you can use your own device and get to it and be able to play the Agent P World Showcase Adventure with Phineas and Ferb and Dr. Doofenshmirtz. So I'm glad that they kept that around because it is a really fun game, and I wish I'd have realized it back in January when I took my kids because they would have really enjoyed doing it again. Turning outside the parks, wanted to talk a little bit about 20th Century Fox, or 21st Century Fox as it's called now. It's interesting. It looked like Disney's deal was going to get done and everything was going to go through. There were still some regulatory hurdles to cross because you know media giants have to go through some, uh, some federal guidelines and be reviewed. But it looked like it was probably going to get done. And then this week, Comcast came through and made an all-cash offer that was higher than Disney's. So Comcast wants to get in this game and buy the same fo- properties that Fox was going to sell to Disney. So this is going to get more interesting, I think. So it's not a done deal. Uh, Fox and Disney have not agreed completely to do this. And I think it's going to get escalated and they're going to go back and forth even more. And you still have to go through the regulatory hurdles. And there's still questions about what happens to the other entities, the Fox News, the Fox Business News, Fox Sports and the Fox-owned TV channels. But the rest of it still is up for sale and might will get sold to either NBC Universal or to Disney. If NBC Universal gets it, they become the giant of all giants. If Disney gets it, they rival uh, Comcast in that case. So we'll see where that all goes and who wins out on this one. This is going to be interesting because I think it's going to be a little bit of a knuckle-biter here as it comes together and both companies want to win. I stumbled across something interesting. It was uh, Disney's research arm had created something that uh, amounts to Baymax's arm. It's an articulated arm that can open and close and do different things, but it has like this uh, pillowy, almost uh, balloon structure around the, uh, the, the bone structure, you know, the metal bone structure that makes up the arm that can respond to touch. And it's really kind of interesting. So the, uh, it looks very Baymax-like in the way that it moves and the way it articulates and the things that it does. And because it responds to touch, it can actually deflate and inflate just a little bit and figure out how, how much grip there is and what's going on. The concept is cool. I'm not sure how they're gonna use it or how they think they might use it, but I like the concept that they've actually created something that they had sort of thought of in a a movie sense. So kind of neat, we'll see if it actually turns out to be uh, something interesting. So even the the articulated fingers, when they close, they actually are pressure sensitive so that they'll release a little bit of their pressure inside the fingers uh, so that they deflate just slightly so they don't hurt whatever they're picking up. Very cool. So I want to see where they go with that technology and how they decide to leverage it or whether they can use it for something. Then I also saw something about a virtual reality jacket that uh, Disney was working on. What it what they do with it is they actually created a virtual reality type uh, mask that you put on, so something similar to the, some of these uh, some of these virtual reality glasses. And uh, you put them on and it gives that so you're seeing something. You've got the earpieces in so you hear something, and then they do the uh, the jacket to make it feel like something. So it's really kind of cool, and it, they, they're saying it goes beyond the idea of watching, playing a video game or watching a movie because now it gives that heightened sensation. Uh, it's being developed by the researchers at Disney to help take the VR experience to another level at a time when the adoption rate has been slow. Connected to computer software that controls a series of inflatable compartments, it can reproduce a variety of sensations, adding new kinds of perception and depth to VR. Along with researchers at MIT Media Lab and Carnegie Mellon University, Disney hopes the jacket can augment VR experiences typically limited to visual displays seen through the headset's simple hand vibrations felt through joysticks. The primary motivation of this research was to enhance the entertainment value of the headset-mounted display by providing on-body force feedback, the researchers wrote in a paper. The force jacket contains 26 inflatable compartments which can reproduce more than a dozen feel effects such as a hug, a punch, or a snake slithering across your body. These sensations are created by modifying the speed, force, and duration of inflating or deflating the airbags. So if you think about that in combination with what I just said about the Baymax idea, these things are very similar, right? They're kind of related in a way. So it's really kind of interesting that Disney is kind of taking on this this idea and working very closely with MIT and Carnegie Mellon to come up with uh, some solution here. A different sort of approach to the entirety of how we think about virtual reality because the one thing that's missing is the sensation that you're actually immersed. You can see it and you feel like you are, but you don't have the sensation here. The rest of your body is not there. You're disoriented and your head feels like you're there, but the rest of your body doesn't. So this takes it a step further, which I think is kind of cool. All right, and finally today, I wanted to talk about the uh, monorails of the, in Walt Disney World. And you know the monorails that they have currently, they're the Mark Sixes. They came in the, on the line about, what, 1992? So they've been there for about 25 years or so. And these, um, these monorails are aging. And Bob Gurr recently at a conference called them duct tape monorails, which I thought was an interesting turn of phrase for him. But I think it kind of fits because you've heard stories about, you know, the doors not closing properly, things with some broken little things inside, um, you know, problems with some of the computer systems resetting. You know, obviously the machines themselves are old and wear. They take good care of them, no question about it. For the number of millions of miles that they run every year, it's amazing how Disney cares for them. And they do order parts for them occasionally, and they have reused extra parts from other monorails. Like when they had the crash, all the extra compartments and cars and everything they had in them became reusable for some of the other uh, monorails that were still on the uh, on the track. So it's you know it's been really a, you know a good maintenance program that's been keeping it going. But it is probably time for a replacement. So there was a story that leaked out that Disney had ordered a replacement set of monorails from the Bombardier Corporation of Canada. Uh, And then the story came out that, well, maybe they didn't. Then Bombardier say, no, we don't have an order on file from Disney. And I think it may be a little bit hyperbole and just talking very specifically about the kinds of questions that came up. It may or may not have been that they actually placed an order. They may be in discussion to come up with the plan or what they want them to look like or the design or something. They may have a formulated design, but they may not have actually placed the formal order for whatever 12 or something new monorails. Uh, Now remember that you have limited space in some places because you don't want to redo your platforms and you don't want to redo the entrance into the contemporary and some of the uh, other things that are there. They have certain size restrictions, so you have to kind of keep it in the same size range. So all of those things come into play and they have to figure out how they're going to do that. Plus, it's an expensive proposition. These monorails are not cheap, so it would cost them something to do it, but they could come up with an entirely automated set of monorails that could essentially run themselves and wouldn't need the driver other than just for emergencies you know, in the front of the car. So interesting, don't know how that's gonna work out, but I, I suspect it's, there's probably more truth to this rumor than not, though I certainly don't know. Uh, oh, and one aside, last year when I was up in Canada, we were driving between Ottawa and Quebec City and we're driving along and you know, it's a lot of farmlands and a lot of open fields and whatever. And I'm going along and I look over and I see this building off in the distance as we're driving along one of the uh, expressways there. And I'm looking off in the distance, and that's interesting. It's the one building that's standing there. As we're coming up on it, I notice it says Bombardier Corporation of Canada. And the first thing I thought of was, hey, that's where the monorails all came from. That's pretty cool. I'm seeing this little touch of Disney history right here as I'm driving along toward Quebec City. And it was really kind of neat. It was one of those moments because it was the only thing there, so it was very obvious what it was and had the sign out front and everything, I was like, hey, that's pretty cool. That's where every monorail that came to the Magic Kingdom and most of them that came to Disneyland came through that facility right there and made their way down to to, uh, Florida and California. That's kind of cool. little piece of Disney history as I'm driving along. I always love that when things like that happen. You have that moment of history that just kind of hits you. And talking about monorails brings me around to thinking about the transportation plan for Disney. So... It seems like Disney has no comprehensive transportation plan at this point. Maybe they do, and I'm not aware of it. That's certainly a possibility. I, I don't, you know, I don't have any close ties to anyone who works in management or the uh, transportation uh, organization. You know, the the uh, groups that run the transportation uh, design for Disney. So I really don't know. But at Disney World, yeah, you know, you've got the gondola system that's coming in that'll take care of some of the passengers that are in certain areas down in that part of the park between Epcot the Coronado Springs, and then over to uh, the studios. And that'll take care of traffic going that direction. You have the monorail that goes between Epcot, the Magic Kingdom, and so forth. But you still have outlying areas. You still have uh, where, you, where you go to uh, the Animal Kingdom and where you go to uh, some of the uh, hotel properties or the resort properties that are further out that don't necessarily have easy transportation or won't have easy transportation. So the question is, do they have a plan for adding perhaps more gondolas, perhaps more monorails, or perhaps they're gonna come up with some other environmentally friendly type of bus transportation that would get people around to different places. For the longest time, Disney relied on buses as the primary means of transportation outside of going between Epcot and the Magic Kingdom. When they first designed the park, the plan was to have the monorail go everywhere. Some of the original designs and the the actual some of the models they built show the monorail going around to different places, including toward downtown Disney and toward some of the other areas that they were planning to build. It never happened, obviously, but now the question is what will happen? What's the the next plan? What are they going to do? They relied on buses to fill in the gaps for a period of time when they first started opening new properties and opening new things that were a little bit further away. And it was a way to get things going. Remember that back in the day, there were buses that left from behind the Transportation and Ticket Center. It was called the Transportation and Ticket Center at some point. And there were buses in behind it that went to different places. And the number of buses they used was relatively small. They could go from there and take you to different places. And they would buy new buses from some major company, say GM or whoever, and they would, play, you know, they would put in a bid and they would buy 30 buses or 50 buses or whatever the number was. But then their routes grew and the number of drivers they needed changed and the number of buses they needed changed and the number of routes they needed changed. So that what they were doing instead was going to municipalities and buying buses from fleets and municipalities that were retiring those buses. So say a, a major city... Has a hundred buses on its uh, rotation, and every couple of years they replace twenty of them. Disney would buy the twenty that they were that they were no longer going to use, and would bring them to uh, Walt Disney World and would actually do some work on them, do some overhauls on them, get them ready to go, and put them into the, their rotation. Which is fine. I mean that works, but it's it doesn't solve the long term problem of what do you do with it. And these buses are already aging, and they're already past some, what might, some might call their prime. That's why they were sold off. Though they're still fully functional and can be used but then again they're not environmentally friendly and so what do you do you know where's the balance there so i wonder if disney has a plan for what they're going to do for transportation 2.0 and how they're going to get past this and start doing something that's a little bit different other than driving bus after bus after bus And with the increase in the number of people that are coming to the resort and the people that are staying in the hotels and the people that are coming to the the theme parks, you know, there's more people on the roads and there's more buses on the roads. And naturally, you hear about more accidents more frequently. I wouldn't say it's frequent, but more frequently than you had in the past. So that will only increase as well. So at what point do they decide that having, having buses on the roads is not the most efficient way to do it? Maybe you have more minibuses or you use the minivan service or something like it to do short trips and, you know, little things like that. Or maybe you come up with other types of mass transportation that make it easier. You know, I leave it to Disney to come up with something innovative and interesting, and I hope they do. I want to see something cool. I can't wait to see the gondola system open and see what it looks like and how it works and how efficient it is. And maybe that's their test case for what they're going to build for parts of other places, you know, to get to some of the more outlying areas. I don't know. As long as they're being innovative and creative, I'm cool with it. And finally, I wanted to share with you something that I'm working on. It's sort of a video log series, and it's, uh, the idea is sort of lost in Disney history. What I want to do is talk about things that uh, Disney had planned, had built, had started on, something like that that kind of got lost in history somewhere. haven't quite figured out the name yet and how I'm going to uh, position it, but the idea is to kind of look at things that, that might have been lost. Rather than me talking to you all the time through your headset or your car radio or however you happen to be listening to this, I'd like to show you something, be able to talk about something and show it to you and maybe show you the historical connection there of something that happened. So I'll be working on that over the next little while, and I'll start to create the videos and put them out there. not sure how I'm going to link them up yet. I might just put them on YouTube. I'm not sure yet, but we'll figure it out. And I'll let you know how it goes. I'll make sure I keep this, this space updated uh, to let you know what I do with it. Um, but the idea is to kind of talk about Disney history. I enjoy talking about Disney's history. That's one of the things that I'm most passionate about. What Historically, what was really cool here? What was, what was here? What, what was it all about? It's sort of that, I, I think I say in my intro, it's something along the lines of, you know, I understand Disney's place in history. And I I like that about it, right? That's one of the things that really captures my imagination about Disney is how they kind of came to this idea of Walt Disney World and how they developed on it. And there's a lot of interesting things that happen as a result of that. And there's a lot of historical context and things that I can relate to. And uh, I'll have to tell, that's how I'll tell the story is through a video narrative and talk about some of these things. And I think there's even a few things outside of Disney World that connect to it that I'll probably talk about as well. And if I can do videos of them, all better. Anyway, so that's it. That's what I want to talk about. If you have any suggestions or thoughts about that, please do feel free to email me. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps.